Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk every week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thank you so much for being with me today, and I want to put out a special thank you to the 3,000 or so listeners who joined me during the first month of the show. As you can imagine, I'm truly, truly overwhelmed by that. I hope you'll go to Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Today I have with me Claire Bidwell-Smith. Claire lives in Los Angeles, where she's a psychotherapist specializing in grief, and is also an author of the memoir, The Rules of Inheritance, released by Penguin in 2012, which tells with deep honesty the story of Claire's loss of both her parents between the time she was 14 and the time she was 24. Rules of Inheritance will soon be a major motion picture starring Jennifer Lawrence. Claire received a BA in creative writing from the New School and an MA in clinical psychology from Antioch University. She's written for many publications, including the Huffington Post, Salon.com, Slate, Black Book Magazine, and Chicago Public Radio. Her background in tr- includes travel and food writing, working for nonprofits like Dave Eggers Literacy, Literacy Center 826 LA, and bereavement counseling for hospice. Claire's available for one on one therapy for issues related to grief and will also be co facilitating a transformative, trans- excuse me, transformational grief retreat in Ojai, California, January 24th through 26, 2014. And of course, the book is a must read. It's really, really wonderful. She's currently working on her second book, and I'm so happy to welcome you today, Claire. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. I'm, it's a great pleasure. Um, from the outside, it seems like you have two very engaging and time-consuming careers. <sighs> and <laughs> I also know you have young children. How do you weave all that together? Does it feel like one thing, a lot of separate things you're trying to juggle? How, do, how is that for you? Um, some days are harder than others, but for the most part, um, I'm, I'm making it work. I found motherhood to be really creatively inspiring, so somehow when I had the least amount of time in my life, I was the most inspired to do um, the most I've ever wanted to do. Huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I know that problem well. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm doing it all right now. Um, I feel like the grief and the writing really tie together. I, f- I feel like therapy and writing um, kind of go together in a strange way. They're both about narrative, about finding our stories, understanding our stories, the stories we come from, the stories we're creating every day, um, the stories we're living through. And so I think there's something really um, parallel about, about being a writer and also about being a therapist. Mm. So I feel like even though they're very separate careers in some sense, there's also kind of intertwining there that makes sense to me. I can also imagine that, uh, I know as a therapist myself, it's important for me to have ways that I do talk about my own story. 
Mm-hmm. So that I'm, I'm kind of clear what I'm bringing to that relationship. Do you, uh, do you have that experience also? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of been the way I've been since I was a kid. Just always understanding myself through my own writing, and especially now as a therapist, too. Kind of always trying to seek to to understand myself in the highest way possible in order mm-hmm. to be a better therapist and a mother and a person. Um, mm-hmm. Writing has always helped me to do that. You know, in reading the book, I noticed how really tremendously good you were at capturing how a person, the ages you were when you were going through that, might react to those experiences. I I felt as if I was in those ages in a way, mm-hmm. and um, ha- and also I noticed how much you evolved between the two losses, uh, the way that we do, <laughs> you know, yeah. as we as we grow and change. How did you manage to go back into those moments so completely? You know, it took me a long time to figure out how to write this book and how to tell the story. And the big shift came when I decided to write the book in present tense. Um, And that was the thing that really enabled me to step back into those different ages that I was. Um, When I initially wrote drafts of this book, they were written in the past tense. They were always me you know, at age like 30, 31, looking back with all the knowledge that I have now and and all the perspective that I have now. Um, And when I decided to write it in present tense, I really had to step back into, you know, the shoes of my 14-year-old self or my 18-year-old self or my 25-year-old self. And it it was a very visceral experience. And and it took away any future knowledge, any future perspective, any future growth, you know, from that Mm -hmm. experience um, that I was writing from. And I think it ended up making for a much more powerful book. It's really the way it felt to me reading the book that that I was that that I was sort of in those ages with you, and I thought that was very very powerful. Um, I also know you're planning a retreat later in the month, as mm-hmm. I as I mentioned, and I actually found out about you from um, something you posted. Uh, at, that Maria Shriver reposted, I believe, um, from your blog, and I wondered if you might. Uh, be willing to share that passage because it moved me a lot. That's the original reason I got in touch. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been getting to know Maria Shriver a little bit lately, and she is such an incredible woman, and she's such mm-hmm. an advocate of um, just making grief a bigger conversation in our culture. And so I've been really honored to to work with her. And, um, and uh, yeah, I'll read this about the about the retreat. I first came up with the idea of creating a grief retreat while I was working as a counselor for a hospice in Chicago. Every Saturday, I met with a group of people who had lost a family member. We gathered around a conference room table on the 10th floor of a hospital in the Chicago suburbs. Snow fell outside the windows as each member of the group shared their innermost thoughts about the loss they had just endured. Feelings of guilt, regrets, moments missed, loneliness, and hopelessness were all confessed. I had been through my own painful grief process after losing both of my parents to cancer in my late teens and early 20s, and listening to these stories was cathartic, even for me. I never ceased to feel amazed by how healing the shared camaraderie of grief could be. Losing someone you love is a universal experience, but it's somehow a lonely one as well. The world goes on while yours has stopped. Creating space for grief and making room for conversation about the accompanying feelings of loss is incredibly valuable to the healing process. This was something I learned along my own journey and then saw reinforced through these groups I led. Along the way, I also learned that tools such as yoga, meditation, and inner reflection could be incredibly useful. 
I began to envision a weekend-long retreat that incorporated those same intimate group discussions, but also yoga, meditation, and body work that would help people access some of the deeper places we hold our grief. Several years later, several years after this initial idea sprang into my head, I found another therapist, Taya Harvey, who shared my vision, and together we brought it into being. In January of this year, we'll be holding our first ever grief retreat in Ojai, California. This particular weekend will be especially meaningful to me as it falls on the 18-year death anniversary of my mother, a date that marks her being gone for exactly half of my life. For so long, I've been dreading the arrival of this date, knowing that every day afterward, well, I will have been alive longer without her than with her. But now I look forward to it, knowing that I will be sharing the date with others in such a healing way. <clears throat> I, I really resonated with that piece of writing, I think because of uh, something that seems true in my experience about um, coming to terms with loss naturally uh, impelling you towards making that useful to somebody mm-hmm. and, um, you know, being able to share what you've learned with people. And I get the idea that's, that's a big part of your experience and thinking. Am I right on that? Yeah, absolutely. When I began to kind of emerge from my, the real thick of my grief um, was around the time when I went back and got my master's in clinical psychology. And I just felt like, and, and when I graduated, I was looking for a job and I ended up going into hospice because I'd had such a positive experience with it with my father. And I just felt like if I was comfortable with, with this realm and this world, which I am talking about death and talking about grief and helping others through it, then I should do something with that because it is such a hard subject for so many, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would be, you know, out somewhere. I mean, I was only 30 when I was working in hospice and I would, I don't know, I'd be at a party or something and somebody would ask me what I do. And I would say, Oh, I'm a grief counselor for hospice. And their, <laughs> their face would just fall. And they would be like, Oh my God, that sounds really uh, depressing. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't see it that way. I, um, mm-hmm. I see it as such a beautiful part of the life process. And I, I feel so privileged to to walk with people through their grief path and, and, and go through these things. And, and so I feel like because I can do that and I do feel that way, I should use that in some way to help others. Yes, and um, I know for myself, that's sort of the most satisfying work I do, in, also in the sense that people kind of come to it prepared to open up because they sort of can't help it in a way. Have you found that as well? Uh, you know, there, there they are in all of their feelings, in all of their selfness, um, big experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that once you kind of enter into the world of grief, you're part of that club. And when you find others who you can share it with, it just kind of opens up whole new worlds of conversation and kind of a new depth to life that I think is really quite beautiful in a lot of ways. I, I know in your book there were a couple of times when um, that kind of sharing happened early on, but I also got the feeling that that's something that came more into play later as you were trying to deal with those losses. Um, first of all, did I get that right? And second of all, um, how did it how did it start to be clear to you that sharing was helpful to you in, in grieving? Um, you know, in my very first chapter of the book, I write about uh, a fellow student that I was with in college and, and a night that we ended up 
um, I went to get some help on a paper, and I just found out that my mother was dying, and 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 I was trying to sit through this tutoring session with this this guy, and I started crying, and mm-hmm. I told him what what was going on, that my mother was sick, and I was going to have to go spend Thanksgiving in the hospital, and he just out of nowhere opened up to me and told me that his father had committed suicide a year before, and and like our whole night shifted. We ended up sitting and talking all night long, and. Um, it was the first of kind of many encounters like that that I've had in the last almost 20 years since my mom died, mm-hmm. uh, where I've just, you know, come across people who are kind of going about their days, but they hold this, this thing inside them, this thing that happened to them, this grief, this event that shaped who they are, and and suddenly you just kind of like unlock each other. And um, it's it's happened to me over and over through my life now, and I've had some of the most remarkable experiences with other human beings because of that. And that was the kind of beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that seemed to kind of come uh, unbidden in a way. It, um, it was totally unexpected for me. And even then, it's not like I went seeking it out afterwards. Um, I still felt like that was like a one-off experience. And, right. <laughs> um, but I was, after that, always drawn to to books and memoirs and other people's stories of grief and loss. And it just, I felt so alone. You know, I was 18 and all my friends were in college and my mother died and I didn't know anyone who had been through anything like it. And I just felt really isolated in my experience and really alone in it. And so reading about other people's experiences of loss or even just any kind of big hardship gave me a lot of solace and comfort. Um, It was part of why I wanted to write this book and part of why I, you know, do the work I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know for me, um, reading um, stories from other grievers has always been a lot more useful to me than uh, reading about, you know, the nuts and bolts of grief or sort of how to grieve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just reading stories always opens me and touches me so much, and I certainly experienced that reading your book. Yeah, it's just that, that idea that someone else has been in this in this like unbelievable place that you're standing in and that they got through it, you know, mm-hmm. there's something so mm-hmm. powerful about that rather than reading about like, and then you're going to go through this stage and then this is helpful. You know, it's, yes. those are helpful to a certain degree, but, but just seeing someone ha- come through this process and like stand on the other side of it for me has been the most healing and like hopeful experience. Yeah. Yeah. That, that certainly is familiar to me. Um, so, um, what do I want to ask you next? <laughs> so many things. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, how grief interplays with parenting for you. And I, I know we'll be going to a break fairly soon, so there's just a, a beginning, but... Um, can you talk a little bit, bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, it's. Um, I feel like the, all the losses I've been through, losing my parents and the other people, it's, it's made me. Um, it's made me very present, very conscious of the time I have with the people that I love, particularly my children. Um, I think often now that I've become a parent, what it what it must have been like for my parents to say goodbye, to to leave, to know they were dying, and have to. Um, you know, say goodbye to their child. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think a lot about the time I have with my kids, and I, 
I feel like it makes me um, just very present to to all of our moments. And so some of the things that I would get overwhelmed by or annoyed by don't always faze me because I just feel kind of lucky to, to be having them at all. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's it's kind of uh, in the background behind all your time with them, huh? Yeah, definitely. So when I come across my daughter, you know, with a pair of scissors cutting up one of her new shirts or something, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> good job good doing all that cutting. You know, I don't know. Um, it's just, it, it, it shapes me a little bit in that way. <laughs> uh-huh. so but it that... also makes me anxious. Um, uh, the amount of grief I've been through, just, I, I have a lot of, I know what it would be like to go through such extreme grief again. So I get a little anxious thinking about me lose, losing one of them or them losing me. It's always kind of there in the back of my head, you know. I have a friend who lost her father at 14 and she said, um, she was kind of anxious until she you know, got enough past that that she felt her son would be okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. That's what I think about as you're talking. Yeah, yeah. When my when my first daughter was born, I, I had this obsession with her getting to like age four or five because I knew if something happened to me before then, she wouldn't remember me. Mm-hmm. I, I just had this obsession with like making sure that like I at least lived long enough till she was four or five so she would remember me and now she's at that age and I'm like okay she's really remember me (laughs) (laughs) well I can't believe it but it's time for a break and um after the break I'd like to hear more about um more about your losses you know back then how it was for you back then and and really explore that more and in the meantime listeners out there in these few minutes you can go to the good grief homepage to like us on facebook follow us on twitter connect on linkedin you can also go to my website www.weatheringgrief.com and to reach claire bidwell smith go to claire bidwell smith Dot com. That's C-L-A-I-R-E-B-I-D-W-E-L-L-S-M-I-T-H.com. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies. But 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word Talk Radio to 96362. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at the Voice America homepage and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. Today, Claire Bidwell-Smith and I are talking about the loss of both her parents and how that led to her beautiful memoir and to the work she does as a grief counselor. And Claire, I thought we could start this segment with an excerpt from your book, if that's okay. Sure. Um, the the part about uh, uh, the whale section, I guess okay. we'll call it. <laughs> sure, yeah, this is from Chapter 5. Um, three years passed, three years without a mother. Now I'm irrevocably this girl, the one who has tattoos and drinks too much the girl who rushes from her noontime writing classes in Greenwich Village to her bartending job in Union Square, the one who is sometimes afraid of her alcoholic boyfriend. In three years, my grief has grown to enormous proportions, where in the very beginning I often felt nothing at all. Grief is now a giant, sad whale that I drag along with me wherever I go. It topples buildings and overturns cars. It leaves long, furrowed trenches in its wake. My grief fills rooms. It takes up space and it sucks out the air. It leaves no room for anyone else. Grief and I are left alone a lot. We smoke cigarettes and we cry. We stare out the window at the Chrysler building twinkling in the distance. And we trudge through the cavernous rooms of the apartment like miners aimlessly searching for a way out. Grief holds my hand as I walk down the sidewalk. And grief doesn't mind when I cry because it's raining and I cannot find a taxi. Grief wraps itself around me in the morning when I wake from a dream of my mother And grief holds me back when I lean too far over the edge of the roof at night, a drink in my hand. Grief acts like a jealous friend, reminding me that no one else will ever love me as much as it does. Grief whispers in my ear that no one understands me. Grief is possessive and doesn't let me go anywhere without it. I drag my grief out to restaurants and bars where we sit together sullenly in the corner, watching everyone carry on around us. I take grief shopping with me, and we troll up and down the aisles of the supermarket, both of us too empty to buy much. Grief takes showers with me, our tears mingling with the soapy water, and grief sleeps next to me, its warm embrace like a sedative, keeping me under for long, unnecessary hours. Grief is a force, and I am swept up in it. Mm. That so captures it. And the other thing I feel it captures is what it's kind of like to be a newly launching person and have a big loss like that. Your mm-hmm. um, your time of life is so woven into your writing. Um, it, it really has a lot of impact on me that way. I think of my own children, you know, they're, they're about that age group, um, uh, what that would be like. 
Yeah, it was just a moment when I was stepping out the door. You know, my mother died my freshman semester of college, and so I had just like tried to leave the nest, and and then the nest was destroyed. And um, yeah, it, I was fourteen when my parents both got cancer at the same time. Um, they were diagnosed within a few months of each other. My father first with prostate cancer, and then my mother with colon cancer, and hers was much more. Um, severe, and so my father's treatments were kind of put on hold, and um, my mother, you know, went into immediate surgery and chemotherapy and radiation, and and that just, you know, that was the very beginning of my adolescence. I was, like, kind of almost still playing with Barbies and just starting to look at boys and, and then this, you know, and um, mm. to to face the mortality of my, my parents and my caretakers and the people who you know, loved me more than anyone else was, mm-hmm. it just changed everything about how I kind of viewed the world as I became an adult. And I can also imagine, uh, you know, in that, especially that high high school period, that kind of differentiating you from the other, uh, your peers. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know any other kids that were having similar experiences or were you kind of alone in that? Um, I, I felt pretty alone in the particular uh, illness realm, but, you know, there were other kids my age who were going through in divorce of their parents or um, other kinds of hardships that I related to more than others. But, but yeah, the, the kind of world that most of my peers lived in, which was a very safe, loving place, mine, mine wasn't safe anymore, you know, it was mm-hmm. very fragile. And, and I didn't know what was going to happen. I spent so much time in hospitals and watching my parents kind of just get ravaged by these diseases um, that it, it just completely changed my, my view of the world and my view of safety as a, you know, as a family member, as a daughter. And also I can imagine it's sort of pulling you in two directions. You're, that's a time when you they're supposed to sort of be the gas tank and you're, you know, driving away. And mm-hmm. um, you got pulled back in a sense, uh, you know, unhappily or happily uh, to be there with them. Um, that's yeah. that's very um, counterintuitive combination. It was very confusing, you know, that it definitely that time when you're supposed to be kind of pulling away naturally from your parents and, but every time I did, there was so much guilt or I was pulled back. And I, I, I really wanted to go to this one college. And it was in Vermont. We were living in Atlanta. And I wanted to go to this one, just have my heart set on this one place. And it was mm-hmm. a tiny liberal arts college up in Vermont. And I would never forget the day that the acceptance letter came and I got in and, and how bittersweet it was. You know, I, I, my mom, my, my dad were so thrilled that I had gotten into this one place, but it was so far away and they were so sick by then and my mother was. And just the kind of knowledge that I was going to be going that far away from them at that time was really hard for all of us. And something that haunted me later, you know, when she died shortly after that, you know. Was that an open um, conversation between you? Or did you just kind of feel from them that it was hard for them too? Um, I think I felt from them a little bit at the time and knew more later that it was difficult for them. At the time, they were pushing me out the door, you know, as mm-hmm. opposed to they were encouraging. My mother had a really hard time talking about 
about death. And, and I think that that was one of the reasons that her death was so hard on me. We never really talked about it. We never really talked about what it would be like if she died or, um, I don't know what, what her views of death were, what her views of the afterlife were, if she was afraid or if she, I mean, we just never talked about it and, mm-hmm. um, because she was afraid to talk about it. And I think it was so hard for her. So for a lot of it, they just kind of pretended like everything was going to be fine. And, and that ended up, I think, being more difficult because everything wasn't fine. She died and it was somehow so shocking, even though she had been sick for four or five years, you know, it was shocking and abrupt when she actually died because, I, I wasn't prepared for it, you know. You, you kind of, if someone's ill a long time too, you sort of develop the fantasy that um, they'll just keep going up and down. Right, for, you get used to that kind of roller coaster of it all. You sure, know, you go to sure. get through another surgery or another treatment, and then they're okay again for a while. And um, so when she died, it was really um, I just I was racked with so much guilt and remorse over things I hadn't said to her, things I hadn't mm. done or, you know, that I had chosen to, gone away to go, go away to college or I wasn't there with her the night she died. And um, I had for years so much guilt, just so much pain over it all. And it took me so long to let go of it. And, and um, so a big part, it sounds like from what you're saying, a big part of your process was how to forgive yourself. Yeah, but that was so complicated for me. Um, I think because because of what we're talking about, the way this happened in my adolescence, it it all got so confused with my identity. Um, I had to do some real kind of sorting through it in my twenties about how and um, it didn't it didn't make any sense when I finally said it out loud one day to my therapist. But I felt like there was something wrong with me that my parents had died. Like I felt like I wasn't a good enough person or a good enough daughter to have deserved mm-hmm. to have parents that live forever. Um, or not forever, but to, you know, the normal amount of time. and Longer. <laughs> yeah, longer. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I felt like it was something I deserved because I just wasn't a good enough person or something. Um, it still doesn't, it doesn't sound right when I say it out loud. Like that doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, but it's nonetheless something, a feeling I internalized. Um and, it's, and, I, and I think that's somewhat universal. It seems to me there's, there's some part of us that would rather think we did something wrong than to think that we don't have any control. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that really we're, we're not in charge of that. Um, but getting, getting um, not being able to move beyond that is so painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, I think it was... Um, it was part of finally letting go of that idea and like forgiving myself, like you said, um, even for this thing that maybe wasn't really true. I still had to kind of forgive myself for it. Sure, sure, and and sort of come to terms with it. I mm-hmm. I would imagine. And it, but it does sound as if you're, although your parents weren't talking directly um, about the possibility of death, that they were quite supportive of you as a person. Would that be fair to yeah, say? They really were. My parents were older um, when they met. My mother was 40 when I was born, and my father was actually 57 when I was born. Um, mm. And I think they just kind of lived a lot of life, and they, from the, from the very beginning, as a baby, they saw me as a person. You know, my father had raised three other children, and I think when you, like, raise 
babies all the way into adulthood, you realize that they really do become people. <laughs> and I think that he could uh-huh. see that in me from such an early point. Um, and he just treated me a little bit differently than I think some of us younger parents do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were, they were incredibly supportive of who I am. My father's death was very different. My mother was in so much denial and so much pain and so much fear um, going through her illness. But my father, when, when it came time for him to, to, his cancer came back when I was 25. It was about seven years after my mother died. Um, and he was old then. I mean, he was in his early 80s. And he didn't want to go through all the stuff that my mother did. She had done every last minute experimental surgery and treatment and just like really ravaged her body and like gone to the extremes trying to survive. And my father didn't want to do any of that. Um, mm. And he was like, look, kiddo, I'm, I'm 83. Like there's really like, I've lived a great life and I, I have you and I have my other kids and I had this amazing love affair with your mother. And I did so many things in my life and I, I, I'm ready to like, you know, to, to be at the end, you know, and I don't want to go through all this stuff. And, in the, initially, that was hard for me. I, you know, wanted him to fight. I wanted him to be around longer. I was only 25. I don't have any siblings. I, my mom was gone. I, uh, I couldn't bear the thought of him being gone too. But I also didn't want him to go through something he didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So he chose hospice, and he went home, and I became his caretaker with hospice. Um, and it was a really different experience than my mother's death, and it was really peaceful, and it was really healing. And my dad and I sat day after day, I sat by his hospital bed and we held hands and I told him all the things I, you know, wanted to tell him before he died, how much I loved him, how proud I was to be his daughter, how much I learned from him, how much Mm. I would miss him. It was painful, but it, you know, I was there holding his hand when he took his last breaths. and, And when he was gone, there wasn't that like incredible guilt and remorse I had when my mother died. Mm. It sounds so complete. It was in a, in a way. I miss him every day, but I don't have this like this dark pain around around his death that I mm. do still with hers. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a very good description in in my mind of why it's worth it to to be you know to to do the whole thing because mm-hmm. you kind of are left with um, just. Uh, what do they call it in our in our manual? Uncomplicated bereavement, you know. Exactly. Uh, just just the thing itself, and not yeah, not extra like that. Just uncomplicated, very clean grief. Like he's gone, and I miss him, and he was my father. But there wasn't this angst about it all that I had with my mother's death. Do you think that's perhaps also because you had already gone through her death and? You brought different things, plus you were, you know, a bit older, for sure. But mm-hmm. I had the sense reading the book that you had learned some things with losing your mother that you took into your father's death. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to be there when he died. I knew that I needed to tell him certain things, and like, and I needed to be able to support him through his through his illness and his death, all these things that I couldn't do with my mom because I was afraid and because it was upsetting or because she was in denial or I was in denial. You know, I learned a lot. I learned all the things that I wished I had done, and so I did them with him. And um, he made it a lot easier, though, too. You know, he really embraced he embraced his death, which I think is a, 
a beautiful thing. It's not something everybody gets to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given the choice, you know, it was really remarkable to watch him really embrace the end of his life and come to terms with it. Um, and, and hospice really helped with that. And I think there's something really important about, about recognizing the end of our lives. And we don't always get the chance to do that. I know that. But sure. I think when I became a mother, um, it was really fascinating to me, the whole process of bringing someone into the world and the beginning of their lives and all the bridal baby showers and the, you know, the giving, giving birth and all the excitement and all the hoopla around it all. And I thought, wow, we, we give so much attention and so much consciousness to this bringing in um, of life, and we don't do it at the end of life. We don't, we don't have the same kind of ceremonial exit at all. We don't put the same attention to it. It's this thing that we shy away from so much and are so afraid of. Mm-hmm. I think when we can give it that kind of reverence, same reverence that we give it when we bring someone into the world, I think, I think that's really important part of the process. It, that's that's a very um, a very touching thing to me what you're saying because I felt when I was you know when I gave birth and then when I was sort of midwife to death mm-hmm. um, that they were very very similar places yeah, on some yeah. level that that they were both doorways into a mystery and. Mm-hmm. Um, Kind of two ends of the same thing. I, I agree with you completely. It's it's so um, it, it's so cut off that we don't have that same way of of being with it. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. it would be a different way, but you know, having it be just as important. And I think hospice really recognizes that. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated with with hospice in general, the philosophy of it, and it's still such a new thing for our culture. I mean, it's really only been around for like 50 years, 60 years. But um, I think you know, so many people shy away from it and the idea of it, and oh, it's a death sentence. But really, what it is, it's like a you know, it's an embrace of of the end of life and and how to do it with as much grace and consciousness and you know, love as possible. But it really is about life, about honoring relationships, love, and, you know, leaving this place. Mm-hmm. With reverence, in mm-hmm. a way. With reverence. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time for another break. Um, I, when we come back, I'd really like to talk more about, um, you know, your your losses seem so beautifully integrated into the life you have now. And I just want to talk more about that when we, when we come back. So uh, to reach Claire, you can go to clairebidwellsmith.com, and we'll be right back. Your life, your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies. But 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word Talk Radio to 96362. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at my Voice America homepage and on my website. Today, Claire Bidwell-Smith and I are talking about the loss of both her parents and how that led to, I guess what I'd have to say, a beautiful life with those losses at its core. Mm-hmm. Uh, um when you're working with people that are grieving, what kind of differences do you think it makes to you and to them that you have also grieved at that deep place? Um, I think it makes a huge difference. I think that grief is um, it's something that you can't know until you go through it. You know, you can read a million books about it and study it and know people who've lost someone, but until you've actually lost, had a big loss like that, it's just it's it's impossible to know and to understand. Um, I, I, I would lead these hospice groups when I was 30, and I would sit there at the conference room table, and the new people would file in, and they would sit around, and they would look at me like, who is this girl? What does she know about grief? <laughs> no, so young. And I wouldn't always say that both of my parents died, but I would always mention that at least one of them died, and instantly it would just, I could see their shoulders relax, like, oh, she gets it, you know, like, mm-hmm. she, knows, she knows what it's like to to grieve like this. and the, um, It's a universal experience. I mean, I think it's a little bit different for everybody how we, how we go through it, but the feelings, the pain is the same, you know, the, the isolation, the, the loneliness, it's, it's all there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a matter of kind of um, the being there factor. I've been there. Mm-hmm. That, that sort of factor of being both members of that, club almost yeah, yeah yeah and i think i think you know just being someone who's on the other side of grief um you know i'm no longer actively grieving and i mean it comes you know the losses still affect me all the time and they kind of flare up here and there like an old wound or something mm-hmm. with certain experiences but i'm not you know actively grieving um for my parents anymore and so i think even just the, my presence of, of someone who is on the other side of it, I can sit across from them at a table or in a room and, and they can see that I've gotten through it, you know, like mm-hmm. I survived those trenches that they're in right now. There's something really just healing about that. 
I I agree completely. In fact, I took a break when my wife not, died, and when I came back, I I absolutely felt like most of my clients got a lot out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, they they kind of looked at it and said, "Oh, it really can be done." Mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah, some yeah. sense, and it was encouraging to them, which wasn't anything I expected at all. Right. Uh, I expected it would be very hard for them, but it was also encouraging. Yeah. So I, I know what you're talking about. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious about your upcoming grief retreat, and I'm assuming that will not be the last one, but is only <laughs> the first one. Um, how are you seeing that, and, and what are your hopes for yourself with it? Um, you know, like I talked about, it's something I envisioned a while back when I was in hospice, and um, I would meet with these groups, and we would meet like once a month or once every two weeks, and we would have these profound like two hours together, and then everybody would kind of filter back into their lives again. And I kept envisioning like a whole weekend together where people were really able to bond and really open up and really kind of move through a lot of their stuff within that kind of... Um, just that environment, that safe environment of others who really understand it. And I also just very much wanted to introduce a little bit of yoga and meditation. Those are some of the things that really helped me through my grief. Um, they were they were things I was really resistant to. I, I just couldn't bear the thought of trying yoga or meditation that I'm possible. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I just kept getting somehow pushed into them in my life. And when I finally really let myself start start those practices, they were the things that enabled me more than anything to heal, just to be present to um, all of my emotions and all of my pain. I was running away from it for so long, you know, getting into relationships and substance abuse and just like anything to not have to sit with the pain that I was going through. And yoga and meditation taught me how to do that um, in a really healing, helpful way and in a way that wasn't scary. I think for so long I was afraid to sit with all of my grief because I thought it would just be too much. I would just, you know, fall into this deep well of it all. Mm. But yoga and meditation were the things that kind of helped hold me in that place and, and, and helped me move through it. And there are things that I am always seeking to introduce my clients to, um, but I know that they can be, yoga and meditation can just sound a little too much for some people. And mm-hmm. so I felt like they would be great things to introduce gently in a weekend like this as well, within this kind of safe setting. And with the spaciousness of time, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. uh, in having some time to meander towards it, as opposed Mm -hmm. to a couple hours once a week. Right, Um, just like having a whole weekend where you kind of step outside of your day-to-day life and your regular life and all the people that are looking at you thinking, asking you, like, are you feeling better yet? You know, are you (laughs) dating again yet? Are you ready to, like, whatever they're asking. Mm -hmm. You know, just to have a weekend where you can really sit with others who who get it and and kind of move slowly through your your feelings. There's there's a sort of thread throughout our our talk today of... um, uh, putting forth the message that it's doable, mm-hmm. you know, that having those feelings and, and really going into them is doable and you can get to the other end of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're in it, when you're really grieving, it just seems like it's never going to end and you're never going to get through it. Like how can you get through another day of this mm-hmm. kind of pain? How can you possibly like get through another year or whatever it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
And and that makes me also really excited for your book to be made into a movie with someone who is, um, you know, wonderful. (laughs) I I, I really love her as an actor, but also um, it will, the movie will be attended and not just by people who already agree uh, in a sense. Right, right. It won't just be people who want to see a grief movie. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, that must be so exciting for you. It is exciting. Jennifer Lawrence is incredible. All the people that are um, involved with the film, the screenwriter and the producer and the director, they're all just these incredibly talented people who who uh, the book really resonated with them for whatever reason. Um, they all have kind of different places they're coming to with it, but they... They um, have a very respectful, deep love for the for the book itself, and they really want to bring it to to screen in the most I don't know um, rich way possible that they can. And and I'm really honored that they want to do that. And I I am excited about the larger conversation that it will hopefully mm-hmm. that will bring. Yeah. Are you um, in what ways might you be involved, or are you kind of looking from? It, have you kind of given your baby over to them? Um, in some ways, you know, it's Hollywood. I've kind of signed my life away. Hi, sweet pea. I just <laughs> picked up my daughter. Um, so in some ways, I've kind of signed my life away. But in other ways, you know, they've been really inclusive with me, um, talking with me a lot about the script process and the um, just where it's going and the casting ideas. And so that's exciting. In some ways, I feel like I, I don't know, I, I'm proud of my book and stand by it. And if I get too attached to the idea of the film, I'm going to get hurt or something because it's never going to be exactly, you know. Sure. It, it'll be a movie. <laughs> for right. It'll be a movie. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, but yeah, I've met with all of them and, and spoken with all of them at length, and, and they're all amazing. Jennifer's incredible. And she seems so perfect. Yeah. I think she's a good Given fit. the way that I felt you in the book, she seems so right on target as a as a persona I guess um, yeah I think she has the kind of both the light and the darkness of it all mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very exciting I, I'll I be I'll be keeping my eyes out for that for sure. <laughs> thank you um, I know that you're writing another book can you can we talk a little about that yeah um, I'm working on a new book right now and it's a little bit kind of like another memoir but um, in it it kind of takes place present day and I'm just really trying to figure out what I believe happens when we die. Mm. I don't have any, you know, very serious religious background, Mm. and I don't have any firm beliefs about what happens next. And so especially having children made me start to wonder about that. And um, Mm -hmm. sorry, my daughter's throwing (laughs) things around. I, uh, I started delving into all kinds of exploration about it, you know, um, seeing psychic mediums and talking to priests and rabbis and doing past life therapy um, and just kind of delving into a lot of different modalities of, and ways of thinking about the afterlife. And it's, it's been transformative so far, the experience. Um, it's really started to change how I feel about my parents' deaths, how I feel about my eventual death, my relationship with the people here that I love. Um, it's, been, it's been wild. Mm. And and again, it's it's kind of going towards the thing that might seem um, difficult or mysterious, but through that um, 
bringing more depth to the whole experience you're having. Yeah. You know, I just keep, I keep getting deeper and deeper into this whole death thing. <laughs> I, <laughs> you, I, I had a, made a commitment. Huh? <laughs> I have, I had, um, I had a strange psychic medium person tell me I was a psychopomp, which means it's someone who helps bridge this life and the afterlife for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of see my work that way, you know, I'm just kind of helping people feel more comfortable talking about death and grief and, and, um, you know, whatever way I can do that. So if I'm, if I feel like I can, I'm brave enough to go through all these things and delve into it all, then maybe I can help others mm-hmm. who are more nervous to do so. Mm-hmm. And, and you sound, um, there's so much joy in your voice as you talk, which to me is, um, uh, makes you a good, I've never heard that word, psychopomp? Psychopomp, yeah, P-O-M-P. <laughs> it's a great word. It's a good word. <laughs> um, wow, we're coming towards the end of our time together. It's been such, such a, such a pleasure. I really have appreciated our talk together. Yeah. And and um, I'd really love it if you would read that the uh, the passage from the end of your book because it it um, I cried when I read it. It was just. So beautiful. So could you share that with us before we go today? It's early afternoon and sun floods the room, capturing them both in a golden light. My young, handsome husband and our beautiful little daughter. There is only a single breath before they become aware of my presence. And in that breath, I desperately want, wish to stop time. I want to live in this moment forever, but I know I can't. I know that we will all keep marching forward that Veronica will one day become a woman, that Greg and I will grow old, that all three of us will die. But I also think that somehow, somewhere, this moment will continue to exist, that it will spin out across the universe, the three of us, linked by love and by those who have loved us, encapsulated for the rest of time in a perfect golden bubble of afternoon light. I love that because it it captures so much for me, um, how it feels to have loss and death then infuse your life with a sort of vividness mm-hmm. uh, and and consciousness that actually makes life so much more beautiful in some in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what I hear in those paragraphs. Is that wh- what you were feeling as you were writing that? Yeah, you know, I. It's, it's such a funny thing to feel so grateful for the loss I've gone through, but I do mm-hmm. because it's made me so present to life and, like, it's made me find life to be so much more beautiful, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's an irony, isn't it? It but, is. But I do find that to be true. Well, just thank you so much for being here today, Claire. It's that been such a, such a pleasure. And, again, you can reach Claire at www.clairebidwellsmith.com. Next week on Good Grief, join me for Michelle Petacolis, a filmmaker who produced Secrets of Life and Death. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl, Cheryl Jones. Don't forget to go to my homepage, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and connect on LinkedIn. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.